Good day and welcome to this very special presentation on this Feast of All Saints. Uh, it is a blessed occasion and you are most welcome uh, for this lecture and conversation. I'm Father Matt Malone. I'm the Editor-in-Chief of America Magazine and the President of America Media, one of the co-sponsors of this event today. And America is proud, once again, to be able to work with our partners to host this discussion today, the Lumen Christi Institute and the Bolandist Society. We're also glad for the support of the Jesuit School of Theology of Santa Clara University, the Nova Forum, the Harvard Catholic Forum, the Institute for Advanced Catholic Studies at USC, the Hank Center for the Catholic Intellectual Heritage, and the Georgetown Office of Mission and Ministry, as well as the Collegium Institute. This feast, of course, is, uh, occupies an important place in the life of the church, also in the life of the Society of Jesus. It was, after all, the lives of the saints that inspired our own founder, St. Ignatius of Loyola, uh, to undertake a pilgrimage, uh, which eventually led to founding with his companions, the Society of Jesus. And so I think it's particularly apt that we have not only one of the church's preeminent historians uh, to talk about this day, our life with the saints, um, but someone who is also a brother Jesuit. Father John W. O'Malley is the University Professor Emeritus of Theology at Georgetown University and is well known to students of church history, uh, especially in the English speaking world. Uh, I would be remiss if I did not remark on the debt that the editors of America Magazine owe to Father O'Malley, who over the last 49 years has contributed more than 50 articles and reviews to our pages. And our coverage is always richer and deeper when his writing graces our pages. Uh, it is a great pleasure to welcome him here today. I'm delighted to be here and I'm very grateful for the introduction by uh, Father Matt Malone, whom I've known for many, many years. I knew him first when he was a novice in the Society of Jesus. And then uh, uh, Mrs. Irini uh, Sanseran, I've known for about uh, seven or eight years now. Uh, she is a wonderful presence in the world of the Bolandists, and especially Father Mark Rotzert, who can't be with us now, but he and I have uh, intersected over the course of about 35 years and become really close friends. We're especially happy and grateful to be with all you on this really wonderful feast day, the Solemnity of All Saints. So it's one of my favorite feasts. I think it, it comes at this time of year, November the 1st, just as the liturgical year is winding down, what a better way than to celebrate the uh, fruit of our redemption by our fellowship with one another, our fellowship with the saints, and our fellowship with the Lord. So before I really launch into what I have to say, I have two preliminary remarks. Uh, behind me, you will see <laughs> my computer is in my closet here in the residence where I now reside in Baltimore. I had a very nice uh, virtual background, but we couldn't get it to work. So you have to look at my clothes instead. And uh, secondly, I feel a little intimidated talking about the saints on behalf of the Bolandist Society because they are the world experts and the saints 
although of course I have a deep interest in them and always have studied them here and there, they're certainly not one of my specialties. So you'll have to be, bear with me and know that uh, I'm doing my best and I hope it's helpful to you. So what I have to say, I divide into three very unequal parts. The first part is the feast itself. Where did it come from and why is it November the 1st? The second, really crucial, a little bit more at length, is the doctrine of the saints, or maybe I really should say the dogma concerning the saints. Where, what is it? How do we know about it? How do we validate it? Then the longest by far uh, part of my talk will be the cult of the saints. How do we put this dogma uh, in, into practice? How have Christians through the centuries put this dogma into, into practice? So it's have several aspects to it. The first is the veneration of the saints themselves. Together, veneration of their relics, and very briefly, the uh, venerating them through the work of pilgrimage. So, and then I'll end with, a, with just a few words about today and where we are today and how we might best celebrate this feast. So let me begin. What is the origin of the Feast of All Saints? You're not going to get a very good answer because that history is murky. We have some evidence that uh, in the pre-Constantine church, as I say, before the recognition of Christianity in the early first century, the toleration of it by the Emperor Constantine, with some sort of celebrations. But it really begins after the decree tolerating Christianity, because all at once now, the uh, people began to consider confessors as saints, not simply martyrs, so the original idea of the saints was that they were martyrs, but now the persecutions were, for the most part, over, and you have people who confessed the faith, uh, but were not martyrs. So uh, how are we going to honor them, not simply individually, but as a group? So there's some evidence here and there in both East and West that this feast was celebrated. The real turning point comes in the year 609. It comes in Rome with uh, Pope Boniface IV, who consecrated the Pantheon, that pagan temple to all the gods, consecrated that to Mary, the Blessed Mary, and all the martyrs. So this is usually taken as the landmark beginning of the feast. Another important landmark came a little over a century later 
with Pope Leo III, who in the Vatican, in the old St. Peter's, established a chapel in honor of all the saints and determined that the feast be celebrated on November the 1st. And that really nailed down this date because we have evidence uh, from the year 800 that Alcuin in England notes that they, it's being celebrated there and thence to all the rest of the Christian world at the time all the way up to today. So that's very briefly the history of, this, of the feast and how it got to be where it's celebrated. A much more important, matter of fact, crucial aspect of this day is the belief. Where did it come from? So our fellowship with the saints. It's certainly based on scripture. I think the our Lord's Last Supper discourse where he talks about the vine and the branches. So this kind of organic link, limit, uh, fellowship uh, with the Lord and presumably with one another. Then more explicitly, more directly, in St. Paul's epistles, where he talks about the fellowship of the saints and the fellowship of all of us together as Christians, reaching across to one another and then upwards to the Lord. And so with, with that, then actually in, in today's liturgy, the first reading from the uh, book of Revelation, uh, all those martyrs before the throne with their with their palm branch. A palm branch was a, a symbol of martyrs. So there we have a, another, these saints, uh, these martyrs are now in the heavenly court praising the Lord. So what we have here really is a, uh, the feast has, the doctrine has, the dogma has both a vertical upward to the heavenly court, to, to purgatory, to the heavenly court, and then horizontal to one another here on earth. That's scripture. What we have though is crucial. The article of faith as stated in the Apostles' Creed that we believe in the communion of saints, the last part, I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, and the resurrection of the dead. Uh, I believe this is a dogma, a dogma of faith. So the communion of saints, communion in holy things, communion in holy people. That really anchors this, uh, this feast and this celebration, this reality. In our Christian tradition, but then we have a a long and uh, elaborate uh, recognition of the feast in the liturgy. I mean, the liturgy in general is first of all we have masses in honor of the saints, and then 
every Eucharistic prayer, whether beginning with the Roman uh, Eucharistic prayer, the Roman canon, and the, the others, but the saints are always, our fellowship with the saints is always mentioned. The Lex Credendi, Lex, Lex, Orand, Lex Orandi, Lex Credendi, the way we pray, the way the church prays is uh, a mirror and a fashioning of what we believe. So uh, I love the Roman canon because in the Roman canon, we have actually saints are mentioned by name. They're all martyrs. And what I especially like about it is the mention of the female saints, the women's saints. So Agatha, Lucy, Agnes, Cecilia, Anastasia, and so forth. And then in the preface to the saints, the, uh, the threefold, we uh, venerate them because by their example, they give us a model to follow by their communion with us, they give us support. And uh, what makes some third one, the, uh, oh yes, they're connected with us. So we're, they give us uh, a fellowship with one another. They give us companionship along the way. So that's just what I would have to say about the, our belief itself. I think it's important to realize how this is not just a fluffy little thing that Catholics do. It's part of our belief system and part of our part of our revelation. What about the cult of the saints? Uh, it's a long, long story, and I think a very interesting story. The uh, uh, how did so the veneration of the saints themselves? I think it's simply a human impulse to honor heroes and to show respect and want some kind of fellowship with our ancestors, those who've gone before us and so forth. So I think that's a good, uh, a good context in which to put this. But at any rate, the uh, veneration of the saints begins, as I mentioned, with the veneration of martyrs. So what is a martyr? It means in Greek, it means a witness, a testifier. So in Acts 122, uh, St. Luke mentions that the apostles were witnesses to the resurrection. So that's what gives them their special role. They're witnesses to the resurrection. And they were all, we believe, maybe not, maybe not John, all martyred. Uh, what about then the uh, the other martyrs that I mentioned? Uh, these were all over the world, Christian world, where they're Christians, and their their graves from the very beginning were honored by Christians and different rites. And we have, I think, a very good example of that in the uh, basilica of St. Peter's in Rome, which is built by Constantine at great expense and elaborate excavations right over a second century little shrine 
to St. Peter. So it was where St. Peter was believed to have been executed. So the, uh, it's a good indication of the uh, uh, role that, uh, the, you might say, the, the beginning, the reason for this cult of the saints. As I mentioned before, then once Christianity was tolerant, you had the, the confessors being honored because they, they witnessed, they witnessed by their lives. And with that, we're off and running. And in the Christian world, from certainly the fourth and fifth century onwards, the cult of the saints, the veneration of the saints as saints was really uh, 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 an integral part of Christian life. Then we come to the more tactile aspects of this cult. The images, the relics, the pilgrimages. I like to put this in a very large context. One is simply a fact. The Christianity was born into a world that was visual. That is to say, truths and messages were communicated by visual means because most of the population in the Mediterranean world were illiterate, or even among the literate people, there was no common language. The elite across the Roman Empire spoke Greek, but a large number also spoke Latin. And then you had Syriac, you had uh, Aramaic and the Holy Band and so forth. So all kinds of different languages. So it was a visual culture. If you, we sometimes wonder why on earth are there so many busts of the Roman emperors that have been excavated? Do we know we just have a minuscule percentage of the number of them, but they're, but they're all over the place. And that was because these busts let people know that they were Romans. They're part of the Roman Empire. The way they, so it's no surprise then that this uh, more visual and tactile element enters. But also the, I, for me, there's a, a much deeper context. And that is the, what I like to refer to as the sensuous character of Catholicism. Not sensual, but sensuous, tactile and physical. The word became flesh. There's the foundation for it. Uh, no longer was a transcendent God, but now assumed fleshly form. And therefore, uh, it's natural that we want tactile things. Uh, Christians believe, I mean, uh, let me just say this, especially since the 13th century, that uh, we're composed of body and soul. Uh, we're not, and they're integrally, integrally related to one another. The soul is not imprisoned in the body. They work together. They're part of one being. And our bodies 
will be resurrected on the last day. So that's another important aspect to this, uh, this belief, this whole background. And let me see, there's something else I want to say there. Oh, yes. Uh, then our, 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 our worship, uh, our worship is uh, very physical. The sacraments, foundation for our Christian practice, these cannot be performed without a material element. You cannot perform the sacrament of baptism without water. You cannot do some of the other sacraments without sacred oil and so forth. So again, that's just general background. But for me, it's extremely important to understand this, this phenomenon of uh, the physical element and the sensuous element of our belief. So images. One problem with images was that uh, the prohibition in the Hebrew scriptures of graven images. And this was certainly had an impact upon Christians. But again, that prohibition of graven images was Yahweh, it was of Yahweh, again, the transcendent God that no one could look upon uh, uh, and, and live. Um, and uh, although he appeared in burning bush, there was, there was no image of him. This all changed, of course, with the incarnation. So we're back where we started from again. The incarnation changes everything. So in the catacombs, we begin to have different images scratched on the wall or painted on the wall of the good shepherd, the young guy with the lamb, obviously uh, an allusion to uh, our Lord, uh, a fish, which was again was his symbol. Uh, and then bit by bit, actual attempts to draw a portrait of Jesus. So the, by the time the church came out of the catacombs, again, in this very visual culture, it was natural for images of Christ uh, and then Christ's friends, the saints, to appear. And this because especially in the East, with the, the Eastern Church, the Eastern Christian Christians, with their, their icons uh, of the Christus Pancrator, uh, were widespread and got, played, began very early on to play an important part in the liturgy. So by the, uh, by the Middle Ages in the West, uh, there were images of the saints, uh, nothing like what would happen in the Renaissance and the post-Renaissance period, but still a large number of them. And uh, they were venerated and began to, in some instances, to be, be considered um, miracle-bearing. Uh, these miraculous images. Uh, so I'll leave it there for a moment and move on to uh, the, the relics. Uh, it's not true to say that you're not really a Catholic until you've kissed a bone. But uh, relics of the saints have played from the beginning an important role, and again, it's somewhat natural. Uh, we uh, 
like to have mementos of our friends. We might have a watch from our father or a handkerchief from our mother, something to remember them by. So there's that general background. But with the saints, it's much deeper, more profound. Uh, the Especially the, well, they all, the martyrs and the confessors, gave their lives, embodied in their bodies, uh, to confessing the Lord and throwing themselves on the Lord's love. So uh, the veneration of, of their bodies and even of the things that they touched and held in their lives is begins to be very precious to Christians. I think that the Council of Trent, its decree on the veneration of images and uh, veneration of the saints and images and so forth, put it very nicely. Why? Why would we not honor these bodies that uh, were members, living members of Christ and temples of the Holy Spirit? Now, again, as some of you know, in the Middle Ages, this sort of got way out of hand and there was a big uh, sort of commercial uh, industry in selling and trading relics across Europe uh, became very, uh, I mean, looking back and even at the time, sort of scandalous. Nonetheless, the basic idea was very good. Then, of course, pilgrimage, that's a, that's just a, a uh, kind of a corollary to the idea of the relics. So going to a sacred place. There you are, you're close to the saint. Uh, we have Chaucer is the most famous, uh, Canterbury Tales is the most famous incident of that in the late Middle Ages. So these became, again, the great industry. I, I think myself of 9-11, uh, so ground zero became a point of secular pilgrimage. Um, I lived in Washington for many years. People come, they want to go to the Lincoln Monument. It's a place of pilgrimage. It's a natural thing to do. Um, but uh, again, this could get out of hand. So that's the basic story of the cult. However, in the um, late 15th century, it uh, met a huge crisis. This crisis was due to several aspects. One was in Italy, this group called, called, called themselves humanisti, uh, humanists, uh, uh, had developed, began to develop a critical methods of studying history. And they turned, some of them turned this new skill to sacred subjects and uh, began to say, whoa, uh, this is not based on fact. Uh, the a good example is 
the humanist in the middle of the 15th century, Lorenzo Valla, uh, applied this kind of method to that document known as the donation of Constantine, that is to say this, this document that purported to be from the fourth century in which the Emperor Constantine gave basically Western Europe to Pope Sylvester. Well, that was true. Valla was able to show from internal evidence that that was a much later uh, middle uh, portrait from the Middle Ages. So with that, they were off and running. The same thing with, they turned this, their attention to scripture, so getting a good scriptural text and so forth, and found out that in the Vulgate there were a number of mistakes that uh, didn't correspond to better, uh, better uh, uh, manuscripts in, in Greek. Uh, so they were off and running. So there was this now, critical look at just about every aspect of Christianity, including the cult of the saints, images, and relics. Meanwhile, that's one aspect. Meanwhile, a general criticism began to swell uh, because of the excesses of the saint, saint cults, especially the relics cult, and the, uh, say, the miraculous images and so forth. And so the, the great prince of the humanists, the Dutch scholar, Desiderius Erasmus of Rotterdam, who lived uh, and was especially active just before the Reformation, so the early 16th century, uh, uh, into he died in uh, uh, 15, I shouldn't, shouldn't say that now because I can't think of it now, actually when he died, but at any rate, he died before Luther did, but they were, they were uh, he was a little older contemporary of Luther. He turned his caustic pen on some of these practices. He has a wonderful little satirical colloquy, let uh, us say a, a fictitious dialogue between two men who go make a pilgrimage to the shrine of Thomas Beckett in Canterbury, Thomas St. Thomas of Canterbury. And uh, they're, they're appalled by the, the relics that the custodian there uh, shows them. For instance, a, a handkerchief of the saint, which is filled with, well, you can name it. You know what a handkerchief can be filled with. They were appalled by this and by several other things like that. So I must say that Erasmus is one of my heroes, and I want to add quickly that he never intended to uh, uh, attack the, the reality was, it was these abuses because he himself wrote a very beautiful liturgy in honor of Our Lady of Loretto, so the Holy House of Loretto, which was a, again a, a miracle story of the House of Nazareth being uh, translated from Nazareth to this little town of Loretto in Italy. So, uh, and he's, uh, he was, as you probably know, the great friend of St. Thomas More. So, uh, but nonetheless, this was very caustic. So this was working. And then along comes the Reformation. And now Luther himself was not uh, against images. He was against this, the uh, uh, excesses of, of, the, of the cult. But uh, uh, Calvin and his followers were uh, extreme. Uh, about any kind of images. Indeed, they were very spiritual. They wanted to rise from, I think, the touch of Neoplatonism in 
in Christianity now just kind of took a, uh, an exaggerated role to escape from the material into the physical. So in France, in the late 612, beginning about 1560, a large number of especially French nobility had been converted to Calvinism and launched an iconoclastic crusade, going around destroying images, destroying stained glass windows and so forth. And then when it moved to Scotland, it was even worse. So that in Scotland, there's basically nothing left of the medieval heritage of the artistic heritage of the Middle Ages. It's all was destroyed uh, in the 16th, late 16th century by the uh, Scots, Scottish uh, Calvinists. So this is, this is a shock now. So this, this very basic sort of Christian practice is really under attack. Now, the Council of Trent meets 1545 to 1563, three big sessions, and to do a general reform of the church. I have to say this, that the membership of the council in this third period, the last period of the council, 1562 to 63, was about 70% Italian, 20% Spanish, and about 10% everybody else, with about 12 members very highly trained, talented, about 15 members coming late on the scene from France. They brought the message about this iconoclastic problem and began to demand that the council issue a decree on it. The, uh, this was kind of a surprise at the council. The, uh, Italians and the Spaniards, they'd not experienced any iconoclasm and therefore not any challenge to the cult of the saints. But finally, the French prevailed at the very last minute, Trent issued a decree uh, on the veneration of images and products and the cult of the saints. So that was the turning point and that gave the Catholics of reinforcement of their belief, but that decree also cautions against excesses and the proper uh, contents and care for decorum of images and so forth. So it's a basically, it's a resounding uh, affirmation of the usefulness and blessing of images and the blessing of the saints, but also a word of caution. So that changes things. In Rome, yeah, it's interesting, although from uh, 1530s, for about 40 years, there were no canonizations. Uh, the, uh, uh, they were sort of didn't know exactly now how to deal with this issue, but that's the only instance of uh, kind of the impact of this psychoniclasm, this attack on the saints in Italy at the time. Anyway, now that's overcome. So we enter a whole new era and a glorious era it is where now uh, you might say the Renaissance is over, but this new uh, pre-Baroque uh, mannerist and Baroque art is now coming with these great artists uh, painting 
images of the saints and they become more popular than ever. And pilgrimage again becomes very popular. Again, now restrained and under certain restrictions, but, but it becomes part of the, the whole apparatus and operation of Catholicism. Now, what about canonization? Well, let me know. Let me first let me say something about the Bolinists. So, as we heard, the Bolinists, they were the Society of Bolinists, they were founded uh, in the somewhere, I mean, 15 uh, or six, 1615 to 1630. And in 1630, Jan Boland, uh, uh, after whom the uh, society is named, took charge. And it began simply with collecting the different manuscripts and legends and so forth, dealing with the lives of the saints, but with a critical edge, because this was now, we have the, this uh, uh, beginning of historical critical method, and the Volus were influenced by that. They, they early on got in a big uh, controversy with the Carmelites, because the Volus said that Elijah did not found the Carmelite order. The Carmelites didn't like that at all. So there was this cru crucial aspect to them. But then when the Society of Jesus was suppressed in 1773, they went out of business, but came back once the society was restored. And now it's got a much more critical edge to it. So I just want to say that, I want to put in a commercial plug here for the Bolinists, that they are a hidden treasure of the Catholic Church and I think hidden treasure of the Society of Jesus. Um, it's uh, one of the great uh, academic and intellectual enterprises of the society. It's, uh, it's related to this crucial aspect of our lives as Catholic Christians. So they do a wonderful work. So any support you can give them, I think is, is well, support well given. And especially when we live in a sort of anti-intellectual world. And these people are, this is a affirmation that the Catholic Church is interested in the intellectual life and interested in scholarship. And that scholarship needs our support very badly. So anyway, the founding of the Baldness is another step along the way uh, towards a uh, comprehensive uh, view of the cult of the saints. And you might say the reformed cult of the saints uh, that we're now, the age in which we're now living. What about canonization? Well, uh, the, uh, the Middle Ages, early Middle Ages, it became important to the saints that were, were for which a cult developed were basically local saints, and uh, you find that in Italy even today. A lot, for instance, a lot of saints, the cathedral in uh, uh, Verona, Saint Zeno. Well, who is Saint Zeno? Uh, what's a local saint? So, the bishops eventually decided they had to kind of keep an eye on this. So, they were ones who said, "Okay, this this saint can." enter the canon, that is to say, can be in a catalog of approved uh, uh, holy people. You can 
have have public worship, public veneration of them, public services in their honor and pray to them. This sort of began to change in the late 12th and 13th century, early 13th century, when the papacy decided to take a, a stronger role in it. And by the beginning of the 13th century, it was become fairly well set that canonizations, this kind of, this validation of public veneration of the saints was to be done by the Holy See and only by the Holy See. And that's the uh, uh, order of business that we, we have today. An important turning point came in the middle of this 18th century with uh, Pope Benedict XIV, who was a great canonist, where he set out all kinds of regulations about the um, uh, veneration of the saints and how the process was to be conducted. And that no process was to be completed until at least after 40 years of the saint's death, which in my opinion is a very salutary rule. That began to change uh, uh, in, even in the, up until the early 20th century, most pontificates have been one or two canonizations at the most. Uh, 1622, the canonization of uh, six of, of five saints, Francis Xavier, Ignatius Loyola, Teresa of Avila, and Isidore of uh, the Farmer, and uh, Philip Nire. That was a great exception. There's just one saint at a time, and very rarely. That began to change in the early 20th century. And then with Pope John Paul II, uh, it was uh, radically changing. Canonized more saints than all his predecessors put together. That's where we are today. Let me conclude with a personal uh, anecdote. Just exactly a year ago, yesterday, I was in Rome testifying in a canonization process for Father Pedro Arupe, uh, who was general of the Society of Jesus from 1965 until 1983. I was in Rome a lot of the time, and I knew Father, I was not a good friend of his by any means, but I met him a number of times, heard him speak a number of times, and interacted with him a number of times in uh, various ways. So I was called to Rome to uh, uh, testify. So I just have to say, they're extremely impressed with the process. Uh, they're very careful. They, uh, I had to fill out a long questionnaire. I had an interview with the judges uh, and so forth. So, Kind of running out of time. I see Father Malone there, uh, kind of running on my back. But anyway, the one last final word. What about the feast today? Here's what I think is be a nice little exercise for us all. These saints. We're not talking necessarily about canonized saints. We're talking about all the holy people of God. In my life, I've known so many, many, many good people, and some of them are really outstanding. One is a woman I knew who lost four of her children, uh, Betty Franzine. I think she's she killed me if she thought I thought she was a saint. But anyway, I think she is, and I think we all have friends like that. So, Matt, it's over to you. Thank you very much, everybody. I'll try to answer your questions. Don't expect too much. <laughs> well, thank you very much, Father John, for that really wonderful presentation, uh, which I, I, I note was in classic Jesuit form in three parts. Um, we, have some, we have some really wonderful questions from folks who are watching at home. Uh, one question I'd like to start off with is, uh, over, over the years, we've 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 sometimes heard about uh, saints in the canon who 
whose historicity is in doubt. Um, how do you how do you respond to that uh, concern? Well, <laughs> I have two sides to me. Uh, one is the pious side, and I say, well, you know, maybe these people didn't exist, but maybe somebody existed that was just as good and the Lord knows how to direct our prayers. Uh, the other side of me, the more critical side says, well, okay, uh, th this is not right. Uh, we shouldn't be venerating people who didn't exist. Uh, so uh, being gentle with the faithful, not trying to you know, scandalize them, but maybe gently kind of remove them from, from our canon. But uh, I guess that's about the best I could do with that question. I, what do you think of that? No, that, I mean, that sounds right. I think it's important to probably recognize that the people who canonized these folks were not in doubt about the existence of these people. For the most part, I think we can assume that, right? So it was all done in good faith. Yeah, even if and they're, and they're, yeah. we're not canonized in the formal sense. I mean, they were right. canonized in the sense they had, had public veneration. I mean, uh, right. St. Augustine, St. Jerome, these people, they were never canonized in the formal sense. They right. were just a big cult. So that's the way some of these things grew up. No, no examination, no no process by bishops or by the by the, by the Holy See. Right, an important distinction. Uh, one question is, how is the liturgy a reflection of our belief in the communion of saints. Uh, and this comes from a, a high school teacher who uh, is always always uh, working to make that abstraction real for his students, for her students, excuse me. Well, I spoke about that. Uh, I think if you look at the liturgical text and uh, just look at the uh, look at the Eucharistic canons, uh, the, the Eucharistic prayers, and especially the Roman canon, but all of them. And after after the uh, act of institution, it all says we celebrate our fellowship with the saints and with the martyrs, and they're named the usually the Blessed Virgin and. Uh, St. Joseph and the Apostles and all the other saints and so forth. So there's the first anchor. But then look at the, the fact that we celebrate the Feast of the Saints and look at the, look at the preface for Masses celebrated in honor of the saints. So there are lots of those. I mean, the celebrate, I mean, the saints, but also how about the canon of the Apostles? Or there being a preface for the Apostles, the preface for the martyrs, the preface for uh, the pastors, the preface for the, the, the saints, the preface for virgins. So it's all over the place in the prefaces. And this preface is the beginning of the Eucharistic prayer. So uh, that's, and again, uh, that ancient axiom, I think is so important. Lex orandi, lex credendi, as we pray, so is our belief, that is how the church prays, not how you and I pray individually, but how the church prays. So this is, I say, an image of what we believe, and it's a fashioning of what we believe. So I'm just repeating myself, but repetition yeah. is always good. 
<laughs> that's right. That's very Ignatian. Uh, we have some. We have really great questions here. I want to get to as many as as we can. Um, what, you're one of the great historians of uh, Vatican II. What effect did Vatican II have on our veneration of the saints, either dogmatically, doctrinally, or just culturally? Well, uh, the, the council had little to say in general about the veneration of saints. But one of the key issues early on in the council was the veneration of the Virgin Mary. And... Uh, so when the council was called, they, what, is, what do councils do? In other words, the councils make definitions, councils define dogma. Well, I tried to you know, punch a few holes in that for myself. But at any rate, uh, so what, 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 what was the council going to define? And so the idea was, well, they could. So we had the definition of the Immaculate Conception uh, by uh, Pope Pius IX in the middle of the 19th century. Then we had the definition of the Assumption of Mary by Pius XII, 1950. So now a definition of Mary as a co-redemptrix, co-redeemer with Christ, with her son. Ooh. Or Mary is the mediatrix of all graces. No graces come to the world except through Mary. Now these may be, you know, valid points of view, valid instances, but the council really felt that's going very far. So uh, in the document on the church, the question was, should we add to that doctrine of the church a separate chapter on the Virgin Mary, or should we have a separate document on the Virgin Mary? And that they had the separate doctrine, the document, document, they were wondering just where this might go. They didn't want to go into that very complicated woods to distract the whole council. So the council finally decided that to add a beautiful uh, eighth chapter to the decree on the um, veneration of Mary. So I think that in the long run, unintentionally, that did sort of cool some of the devotion to Mary that was so such a hallmark of Catholicism and from the middle of the 19th century up until Vatican II. So uh, the being in honor of the sorrowful mother, I mean, that was kind of a, a weekly uh, event in Chicago when I was there. It was a novena that went on forever. It was widely attended. That was just one instance of the May devotions devotions to the Rosary in October. Those have more or less disappeared. I'm not sure that's a good thing, but at any rate, I think indirectly, the council had a kind of dampening effect on some of the aspects of the saints, but uh, I don't know. I, my devotion to them is still pretty, pretty vivid. And <laughs> <laughs> um, Anthony, would you lose something? He finds it for you. I really believe that. <laughs> <laughs> I believe that too. Um, and it's important to point out, isn't it, that not uh, that everyone who is in heaven is a saint, right? Uh, that every 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 person that's been canonized is a saint, but not all saints have been canonized. Is that right? Absolutely. So that's also the point I wanted to make at the end. That uh, you know there are a, 
most saints are never canonized because I like to think there are lots of them around uh, and lots of them that you and I have met. Now, we've met good people. Not every good per per person, I would say, is a saint in the sense of, you know, really a completely dedicated person and so forth has suffered. But, uh, um, no, I, I never, I've known some saints. Uh, yeah. And they wouldn't like me to say that about them, but that's a good sign. <laughs> that's right. Oh, you mentioned, me, anyway. you, you like mentioned the, <laughs> you mentioned the, uh, the, the, the huge number of canonizations and beatifications we saw during the pontificate of, uh, of St. John Paul II. Um, do, do, do you, do you have any concerns about whether the, uh, that we, we, we might need to slow down that process or be a bit more strict about the time frame uh, that, uh, that we have traditionally observed for the recognition of saints? I do. And that's not simply my opinion, because when I was in Rome last year and was went over to the uh, Lateran Palace for my interview with two of the judges in the case, they were clear. They do not like this, these rushed processes. They like for time to elaborate and think of saying, there's a process, we have a process. And it's very important that we keep the process and that with the passage of time, things become clear or emerge that were not so clear at the time the person died. And uh, it's important to wait until uh, this information kind of bubbles to the surface and makes us maybe a little more cautious than we would have been. So, you know, with the, when John Paul II died himself, he santo subito, make him a saint right away, make him a saint right away. Well, it didn't happen instantaneously, but John Paul's successor, Benedict, canonized him, uh, you know, within, a couple of years, when just at the very beginning of his pontificate. Well, it's not saying John Paul II isn't a saint, but I'm just saying that's awfully soon. The Romans had to say, veritas, filia temporis, truth. It's the daughter of time. Uh, the truth occurs as, as time goes on, it becomes clearer. So, you know. How did the process of canonization uh, change under the pontificate of John Paul II? Were there changes to the process or to the requirements? Well, I think both. I mean, he changed some of the requirements. I mean, now the 40-year rule that uh, Pope Benedict XIV had put in the 18th century uh, that had been violated a couple of times before, but now becomes almost a, uh, a non-reality for, for Pope John Paul II. And then he, so there was a requirement of two miracles. He said, well, no, no, we don't just have one miracle. So, uh, and he made some statements that you know, I think are not quite on to the point of I mean, it. Uh, execution of uh, Edith Stein, the Jewish convert. Well, she was executed in the Holocaust, but she was executed because she was a Jew, not because she was a Christian. Now, being a Christian or a nun didn't help her, that's for sure. But uh, so um, 
so a, a martyr dies uh, in defense of the faith. But you can argue, of course, that she died in defense of the faith. But again, it gets kind of murky. Um, mm -hmm. uh, yeah. So over over time, there developed this sense of the the intercessory role that the saints play in the life of the church in heaven and on earth. Um, and how, how did the doctrine around that notion of intercession develop over time? Well, I really can't answer that. Uh, in any I would just say it's kind of a corollary of our, we have a fellowship and a friendship with the saints. And so as the liturgy says, you know, you, you help us by your intercession for us, by your prayers for us, as we help you. So this, you know, we're in the, we're in this game together. We help one another. Uh, we pray to them. We pray for one another and they pray for us in heaven. So, uh, and they, as being there in heaven, they're right next to the throne of God, or however you will imagine that, and uh, can intercede for us with the, with the all holy one. So I don't, I mean, I, I think that's the best I can do. I don't really have any grasp of, of the history of it and how it develops, but I think it's a very natural development and something that's almost, you know, say, well, yeah, sort of, what do you, what, what would you expect? You'd expect something. Right. Um, are the are canonizations uh, the pronouncement of the saintliness of a person are they infallible teachings of the church that's uh, disputed okay <laughs> that's disputed some would say yes and this was kind of other would say no I mean it's comes back to this whole question of how many infallible pronouncements can we bear or can the faith bear? Uh, I myself think this is, this is a really uh, big extension of the idea of infallibility. But I'm just one voice. Uh, I'm, I'm not a specialist in this, uh, so I cede to those who, you know, deal with these matters. But uh, I think it's, well, as you can see, I'm, I'm not exactly ambivalent, I'm sort of against it. But <laughs> right, <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, I think we have time for a couple more. Uh, one question is about uh, the number of uh, lay people or married people who are have been considered for canonization. We've seen a little bit more of that in the modern era, but um, why why the absence of of uh, well why the why the, uh, uh, the 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 vast number of religious and and clerics um, and not lay people or married people. Well, I think with, with religious, uh, the answer is rather simple. The religious are they're organized bodies and they campaign for the canonization of their members. And they also can able put up money to help pay for the process. So uh, for instance, with, with the canonization of 
St. Ignatius and St. Francis Xavier, uh, the Jesuits in Rome, they were on a big campaign uh, to have Ignatius canonized. And, uh, and it, you must realize that Francis Xavier was an extremely popular saint. He had written these letters back from India, I mean, he kind of mesmerized Europe with his descriptions of his travels and what he was doing and so forth. So everybody knew him. The minute he died, uh, King Philip of uh, Spain started the process, began to gather information for the process. Whereas Ignatius, who knew anything about him? He was there in the Curia Rome, uh, you know, writing letters and keeping the Society of Jesus together, but he was not known outside uh, uh, Jesuit circles. So it was not an easy road to follow, but so Xavier and Ignatius were canonized together. But what, so that's, that's one aspect of it. I think it's somewhat the same thing with the clergy. I mean, a diocese can get behind it. Uh, so I'm not saying this is just politics, it's just that, that the way things work. Whereas lay people in general don't have this kind of a, a network to promote their cause. But let me say that although you know, studies have been made, it's, it's absolutely uh, statistically clear that clerics and uh, nuns and, and the swimmers of religious orders uh, are certainly disproportionately canonized. Of course, they've given their lives to God in a more explicit public way. So that's part of it. Uh, but it's not that they're uh, lay people have not been canonized. I mean, the number of medieval uh, married men and women, especially rulers, again, upper, upper class of society, the number of married men and women were canonized. I mean, especially the, the German emperors and, and the, the queens and so forth. Uh, King Louis the, the, uh, uh, the Ninth of France, great saint, married. Uh, so, uh, yeah. Uh, so our last question, uh, Father John, is uh, are there saints to whom you have a particular devotion? You, uh, I know you mentioned St. Anthony. Well, yeah, St. Anthony, <laughs> he helps me. <laughs> uh, and of course, to St. Ignatius. Uh, and uh, I have a devotion to some of the uncanonized Jesuit saints, such as uh, my good friend, Juan de Polanco, who was St. Ignatius's secretary. He's never been canonized. I think he should be. He was a very brilliant man, very self-effacing. And uh, I, I admire him immensely. Uh, there's a Jesuit uh, from the Maryland province, the former Maryland province, Horace McKenna, who gave his life for the uh, for the mediation of the racial issue and for help to the poor and so forth. I mean, he's somebody who I think I really venerate. Um, among the canonized say twelve, great devotion to Saint Teresa of Avila. She's She's great. I mean, I love her. And I, I don't pray to her as often as I should, but I, I so admire her. And let me recommend to people, you want to read something good by St. Teresa, read her book of foundations, where she tells the story of how she found all these uh, convents and monasteries. You'll see a woman, a woman on the move. I mean, she was <laughs> reading something else. And she's very honest and she's funny. So... Uh, she did, couldn't stand corpses. So that's another thing she and I have in common. Uh, 
Oh, interesting. Yeah. Well, uh, Father John O'Malley, it's always a grace uh, and a blessing to have you with us and to have you share with us your, uh, your expertise, your knowledge, your wisdom, your insight. Um, thank you on behalf of all of our viewers.